please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And we'll study t- together this morning, verses 6 to 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 6 to 15. I woke up this past Wednesday morning and I told my wife I had a horrible nightmare. It was a troubling nightmare. I dreamt that the Lakers lost the Celtics by over 30, uh, 39 points, <laughs> that Kobe was cold, that Garnett was, that the Celtics were celebrating like they cured um, cancer or end of world hunger or something, or Gatorade on the floor, and it was just... And I woke up saying, oh, it was such a bad dream. I said, James, it was not a dream. <laughs> it was reality. I knew it was reality. And so, tough week for, the, for <laughs> Laker Nation. Heart was very brought low. I thought at least game seven. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, report came in late last night, about the final numbers for laying the foundation, how much all of you have pledged the next three years. And my heart was happy again, (laughs) rejoicing again. And I'm sure all of you, uh, hearing what has been pledged, brought much joy and gratitude in your hearts. But we want to do this study so that we would rejoice rightly, that our Thanksgiving, our gratitude is rightly placed. That we're not focused on the number, we're not focused on the amount or the gift, but that our study of 2 Corinthians 9 will rightly shepherd our hearts to um, biblically respond to this great provision and so that we might all give uh, appropriate, proper glory to God, proper thanksgiving to God. want you to focus on verse 7. When I study a passage, I'm looking for the active verbs. You'd be surprised to find how confused I am when I began a study. I am off, I often find myself clueless. I find myself in great fear and trepidation because there is genuine fear. What if I don't understand this text? What if I can't understand the authorial meaning, the authorial intent, God's message in this passage. So one way, a major way I discover and discern God's intended meaning is by searching out the active verbs. And that is my starting point in interpreting a verse or a passage in the the Bible. The active verb that is found in verse 7 is one of the few that's found in this whole passage. And the, the object, the, the subject is God. And the verb is loves. And the object is a cheerful giver. That's the radical truth. And that's the launching point of our study this morning. Paul declares to us that God loves a cheerful giver. God absolutely loves a cheerful giver. Now, Paul understands the issues that are in our hearts when we consider giving. When we consider an amount to give, we wrestle with our view of ourselves. In terms of my position, 
my financial state, my role in the church, what is a respectable amount for me to give? We consider that. Or we consider what will others think if they were to find out how much I was giving. Paul dispels these false motivations for giving to the Lord by putting in the middle of this chapter the most important truth that the Christian life is to be lived not in view of men, not in view of others or or, or leaders. The Christian life is unique in that we seek God's perspective in all things. That Latin phrase, Coram Deo, in the face of God. We live our lives in the face of God, and the pursuit of sound theology is to pursue God's perspective in all things, to align our view, our mind, with God's view, God's mind. That is the pursuit. So he tells us God's perspective of someone who gives with joy, someone who gives with passion and desire and joy in his or her heart. And Paul says, God loves a cheerful giver. Now I did a, a phrase study. You can do a word study through a concordance. You look at God and go through all the New Testament and look up every time that word, Theos, or Yahweh is mentioned in the Bible, or Elohim. Or you can do a phrase study. You have Bible software now where you can highlight this phrase, Theo Agape, and search the whole Bible and look for any strings that are found, any phrases that have these two words back to back. I did this for the New Testament because it's in the Greek. I was surprised to find how few instances there were in the New Testament with the phrase, God loves, or God loved. Um, John 3.16, God loves the world. God loved the world. And 1 John 3 talks about God loving His people. And that's it. Go home this week, pick out a concordance if you have a Bible software, or Google it, if you will, and put a quote, God loves, and God loved, and God, and uh, see how many you can find, and you will find this John 3.16 and 1 John. God has love for this world, this general love for the world, and God loves His elect, and He showed that love. He demonstrated it by sending His Son. The third time we find God loves is here in 2 Corinthians 9-7. God loves a cheerful giver. Now, what is meant by a cheerful giver? Who qualifies as a cheerful giver? The first part of verse 7 tells us what is not meant. What disqualifies a person from being a cheerful giver And that helps us to understand what is intended here. Each one must give as he has made up in his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion. If someone gives reluctantly, their heart is uh, complaining, it's grumbling. It's going against one's desire, one's passion. It's out of... um, external force, it's out of legalism, it's out of just pure flesh effort that he is giving, his heart's not in it, then you don't qualify as a cheerful giver. If you're giving money like you're giving blood, right? and your heart is, if I give too much, I'm going to die. right? 
So you collect pennies. You count pennies or nickels or dimes because you consider that just part of your life. Then you're not a cheerful giver. Or you're giving out of compulsion. You're giving out of um, external pressure, compelled by an external force. And you're not a cheerful, cheerful giver. Voluntary giving is one of the key marks of someone who gives out of joy. Paul, was so, this is so important, that Paul took extra steps to ensure that the Corinthians were giving out of joy, not out of compulsion. He took extra steps. If you go to verse 5, you find that Paul tells them, I was going to bring the Macedonians with me to collect the funds, to collect the, collection, the, the, the gifts. But first of all, I was afraid I might be humiliated because of the lack in the gift. But second, I didn't want the Macedonians' presence to compel you to give more. Right? And you can see how that could occur because the Corinthians heard about the Macedonian believers, believers in Berea, Thessalonia, and Philippi, and how in their poverty they gave according to their means and beyond their means. In the midst of affliction, midst of hardship, out of lack, they gave overwhelmingly. And Paul says, I'm going to bring them with me to collect the gifts. And Paul thought ahead, you know, their presence might cause the Corinthians to give reluctantly. And it might cause them to give impulsively. And I don't want that as your shepherd. Because God loves a cheerful giver. Now, that is true. And the opposite must be true as well. God loves a cheerful giver. It's not stated in the Bible. But logic states, God hates someone who gives with a grumbling heart. Someone who gives reluctantly. Someone who does what is right externally, but in their hearts, they're far away. I mean, that was why Christ was so um, harsh, so brutally honest. He so confronted the, the Pharisees because that was the heart of his father. Right? It wasn't Christ acting unilaterally, speaking on his own behalf. He knew his father's heart. And his father's heart was offended by the Pharisees who were so proud of their external righteousness and they were deceived by it. And yet, their hearts are full of dead men's bones. Right? They are tithing, they are fasting, they are praying. And their hearts are full of greed, adultery, full of self-worship, self-love, idolatry. And so because God hates the grumbling giver, Christ rebuked the Pharisees and Paul set up the circumstances where the Corinthians would not be pressured externally. So he made it so that I'm going to send Titus ahead of time and he will collect it when there is no sense of obligation, no pressure, any kind of coercion. And I'm not even there. The Macedonians aren't there. We will come, we'll swing by on our way to Macedonia just merely to collect what has already been set apart. And at that time, right, it'll be, it'll ensure doing it this way, there won't be any kind of compulsive giving on your part. 
That's the wisdom of a good shepherd. That's what we try to do here in this whole campaign. You know, other churches um, make everyone a leader. <laughs> give everyone a ministry. Give people titles as an indirect way to pressure them to give. Uh, they have these um, small group one-to-one sessions with a pastor where I meet with you and I say, Hey, brother. Hey, sister. And I'm supposed to give them this, like, this presentation. Or various other ways to even, like, pressure people to give. We, we spurn that uh, to the dismay of our consultant. Because we don't, our goal is not the money. Our goal is to shepherd our people and shepherd ourselves to give cheerfully because God loves a cheerful giver. And the last thing we want to do is get anybody to give reluctantly because that offends God. That offends Christ. And so we will be participating in the rebellion of God's people by doing this. So we spurned all of that and we made extra steps to, to encourage um, cheerful giving. We got that from Paul's example. What the marks of a cheerful giver is that he or she gives voluntarily, willingly. It's not because of any other external reason. It's a spiritual desire. It's an internal desire. It, it, like the Macedonians, they ask for the opportunity. They, they beg. They entreat. For, they consider it a privilege to give. They consider it a privilege to give. Right. Now, the same question is, or second point is, why God loves a cheerful giver? What is meant by a cheerful giver? Voluntary giving. Secondly, why does God love a cheerful giver? Three reasons. First reason is because it is a means to our joy. It is a means to our joy. God is looking out for us. God calls us to give because therein we find the joy of the Christian life. It is for our own benefit. Giving is a means of grace for ourselves. God wants to be, for example, the center of our home. Because only when God is the center of our home, there is joy in that family. If the family is centered around the child, uh, it's a miserable home. Everyone's miserable. Dad is miserable. Mom's miserable. And you know what? The child is miserable. And the child will grow up and you're ruining that child because the family revolves around that child. And one day he or she will grow up and realize, a rude awakening, realize that the world does not revolve around him or her. And so the child was raised this way. The family revolves. The child is the most important person in the world. And they will face the world and realize that's not the case. And they will rebel. They will they'll be out of control until God gives them grace where they realize they're not the center of this universe. God wants to be the center because God is the center. There's true joy, husband and wife mom and dad and the child and the children. Another example is self-centered man. 
God desires to be the center of our lives. Because if we are at the center, if we are worshippers of ourselves, if our chief love is ourselves and to fulfill our pleasure, our lives will be marked by misery, sorrow, grief, disappointment, and pain. See, I, I know the world. I know their hearts. I know what's going on. I know they're living for themselves and they're miserable because they are not worth living for. A person who is selfish, stingy, proud, self-centered, joy will always be elusive to him. Holiness and true maturity will always be a stranger to him. Joy in one's family, unity and love with fellow believers will be foreign experiences. He will not only have, he will not have any friends. Not only that, he won't be a friend of God. God loves a cheerful giver for our sake. Because He knows by us giving, it will be a means of God being the center and means of us receiving joy. Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote this, He who lives for himself must be wretched. The one who can only rejoice in what he himself enjoys has but narrow channels for his happiness. But he who delights to make others blessed and who delights to glorify God and who can deny his own flesh so that he may honor his master and bless the world, he is the happy man. And as God delights in the happiness which is the result, so he delights in the cheerful giving which is the cause. God loves the cheerful giver because it is a means to our joy. Secondly, because God Himself is a cheerful giver. God Himself is a cheerful giver. We all love people that are like ourselves, right? Our affections go towards a person who is like us in personality and character. Or we share the same love, same passion, same pursuit. Our God is the same. He wants us to be like Him. And He loves a cheerful giver because He is a cheerful giver. I want you to think about this for a minute. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all. God gave His most precious gift, His only Son, voluntarily. He wasn't responding to our faith. He wasn't obligated to us because of our righteousness. No, there was no compelling reason for Him to give us His Son. What what compelled Him was wrath, judgment, and anger. Our evil, our depravity provoked His indignation. So He could have cheerfully given us His wrath, eternal judgment. But instead, He gave us His best, His only Son. What a gift that was. 
parents here, could you give your children, and not for a friend, but for an enemy, could you sacrifice your child because of an enemy? But God, the cheerful giver, spared not his own son, but he delivered him up for us all. And since then, what a cheerful giver he has been. He has given to us without our asking. We did not ask Him for this covenant of grace. We didn't ask Him to elect us. We didn't ask Him to redeem us. These things were done before we were even born. We did not ask Him to call us by grace. We did not even know the value of that call. We were dead in trespasses and sins. But He gave this to us freely. Boundless love. Preeminent grace came to us, outrunning all our desires, outrunning our wills and even our prayers. He is the one that made us pray. He caused us to ask. He gave us a spirit of supplication or else we would never have prayed. He gave us the will to come to Him. Our hearts were dead. We hated God. We are running away from God. And He changed our hearts. We are running towards Him. He gave that to us and He gave us pardon. He ran to us. He had compassion on us. He fell upon our necks and He kissed us over and over. How cheerfully did He give us a banquet with music and dancing and food because we were dead but now we are alive all through His gift of His Son. And we find in the Bible that He is the most cheerful giver in the universe. So, because that's who He is. When He sees that in His children, He loves that child of God. He loves that child. He absolutely loves a child of God who gives with joy, who gives generously, abundantly, because that's who He is. Third reason God loves a cheerful giver is because joy in giving brings glory to God. Brings glory to God. 1 John 5.3 says, This is a love for God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. If we considered God's command, commandments as burdens, we rob God of His glory. We're saying He is not worthy of our submission. He is not worthy. Our obedience, our sacrifice, our, our discipleship, is not, His glory is not worth all these things. So we diminish His glory, His value, His beauty, if we don't follow Him in joy. Psalm 119.47, I find delight in your commandments. Psalm 119.97 Oh, how I love your law. By loving God's law, we glorify the giver of the law. But if we didn't delight in God's law, if we didn't love God's law, we lower His esteem, His glory, His honor. David said, 119.127 I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. So our 
our sacrifice, our gifts, our labor reflects the value of the object, right? What we labor for. Um, many, many years ago, when I, a few years after I got saved, I was saved by a campus ministry. And every summer we would go away for two weeks for an intensive training, study of the Bible, evangelism for two weeks. I mean, I loved the two weeks. It was two weeks of just pure joy, praying, praising, studying the Bible, evangelizing. I loved it. Except for one thing. They did morning calisthenics to wake us up. Two miles of long distance running. I would tell them, I'm awake. <laughs> I'm fine. But it didn't matter. You had to run two miles. I told them, my body's not made for long distance running. I couldn't get out of it, no matter how hard I tried. So we're doing this running and chanting and misery. Um, well, my second or third um, day, I hurt my back. I mean, my back was really hurt. I, my back gave out. I was Scott's honor. My back gave out. And I went to the leader and I said, you know, I can't run. My back is just killing me. He said, great. Then why don't you sit here, you know, do your quiet time. We'll run. I'm like, please God. You know, I'm sitting there reading my Bible and seeing all my friends run. And I'm like, faster, right? <laughs> so that very day after lunch, we had a four-hour work detail. So we went out digging ditches right, just to, to, provide, to serve the camp facility. And our work detail got, got done a little early. So then it was 5.30. We're done around 4. We had about 45 minutes break time. So one of our guys started, went, to, went to a basketball court nearby. He started dribbling the ball, right? And he started, like, shooting. So I'm going to, my back's hurt. So I'm going to just go and watch him closely. And then, like, he passed me the ball. I'm start dribbling, and I start shooting. And next thing we know, it's like 90 degrees outside. We got a full three-on-three going. And I'm, like, posting him up. I'm playing like crazy. I'm going I'm all out. And the leader sees me doing this. And he runs to me, he's all upset. James, I thought your back hurt too much for running. Yeah, it hurts too much to run, but not to play basketball. I mean, I could have a broken leg and I still play basketball, right? Why? Because I love basketball. I hate running. <laughs> I mean, it's hot today, but I, I still play basketball, right? I, I play ball in the rain. I remember we used to stay up till like 1 or 2 in the morning at Cerulean Park. And the lights go out. Like, Daniel, I remember 2 in the morning. We'd be all sad. Why, why couldn't the lights stay on a little longer? It's only 2 a.m., right? That desire shows what's in my heart, right? That desire, that mindset shows what's in my heart. Well, likewise, in our gifts to the Lord. Right? Cheerful giving reveals what's in our heart. It's not the amount, but it's the attitude. We give grumbling, we're saying, God's not worth it. The gospel is not worth it. The church is not worth it. Ministry is not valuable enough. Other things are more valuable in this world for me to invest in, spend my money on. But we give cheerfully. We're we're preaching a sermon without saying anything. We're telling the world 
what we value in our hearts. Three reasons why God loves a cheerful giver. Now, here's the good part. Because of God's love for the cheerful giver, He makes specific promises to him. He binds himself to the cheerful giver, and he says, bilateral, you do this and I will do this. You give voluntarily, and I bind myself. I make these four promises. Verse 6, we find the first promise. Paul employs a familiar agricultural imagery. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Every farmer recognizes that the size of the harvest is directly proportionate to the amount of seed sown. A farmer sows sparingly, he will reap sparingly. A farmer sows bountifully, he sows bountifully. He will reap a great harvest And the spiritual realm, there is a direct parallel. Generous givers will reap generous blessings from God, while those who hold back selfishly will forfeit gain. The first promise that God makes here is guaranteed return. Guaranteed return. You give cheerfully whatever you sow, I guarantee that in return. There will be no loss. It's an encouragement to generosity. You give. It's not like that in the world. There's no guarantee. You could sow a seed generously, and like in Iowa, there's a flood, and you get nothing in return. Or you have a friend, and you sow in his or her life. You pray, you invest, you love, you sacrifice, you give, and that friend is selfish, gives you nothing in return, no guarantee. When you give to God, God guarantees whatsoever you sow, there will be proportionate return. Whatsoever. So if you give little, God will give you that much. He guarantees it. There will be no loss. But it's an encouragement to give liberally, generously, because God promises you give generously, God will return generously. Proverbs 11.25 Whoever brings blessings will be enriched. One who waters will himself be watered. Galatians 6.9 Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not Give up. Hebrews 6.10 God is not unjust. As to overlook your work and the love that you showed for His sake in serving the saints as you still do. God will remember your good works. Money given to God by way of helping the poor or supporting the ministry of the gospel and the church is money bestowed in a way similar to the act of committing seed to the earth. The seed is apparently gone, apparently lost. It might be buried a long time. It may lie in the ground with no indication of a return or of increase. But in due time, it shall spring up and produce an ample increase. And God promises that when we give to God, 
he'll return that to us proportionately. So God's encouragement here is be wise. Do it for yourself. For your own sakes, be generous. And um, that's my approach uh, in life and ministry. I want to be generous to God. I want to be generous to uh, my family, my wife, and my kids. I want to be generous to my friends, generous to people in the church. Why? Because I believe in chapter 9, verse 6. I believe it. That as I am generous, God will return that proportionally to me. I am being selfish in a, in a wise way, right? in a shrewd way. I'm doing it for myself. Right? And for those of you that know my life and my family and my relationships, and if you see health there, if you see a vitality, if you see beauty in, in, our, in our, my relationships, uh, it's not me. Uh, you know, I'm not special it's because of chapter 9, verse 6. This week someone said, James, and I'll just share this with you. You're, just, you're being so generous to me. And I said, brother, I'm being selfish here. I've experienced this firsthand. As I've been generous, I've seen, you know, I'm 38 years old. You see that by now, right? When you're 18, you don't see it as much. When you're 38, you see, you sow and you see the harvest. And I've seen it in my own life. Oh, I sowed in my family and I reaped the harvest. I sowed in the church and I reaped the harvest. I sowed in friends. And some friends, there's no harvest. But most friends, man, there is such harvest. It's blessing upon blessing. Right? Because God promises that. Second promise is that God is able to grant sanctifying, sustaining, empowering grace. He's able. He's not powerless. He's able. And He will grant this conditional grace abundantly to all who are cheerful givers. Synchrony is 9.8. This is what I wanted to say. I I tried my best to twist verse 8 to make it say what I wanted to say. I wanted to say, God will make all grace abound to you. I wanted to say that. So God will do it. That's not what it says. In the Greek, it's clear. Translation is right. God is able to make all grace abound to you. God is able. So why doesn't God do it? If God's able, He has grace, just give it to me. Well, salvific grace, He He gives it to us. He gave it to us on the cross. At the moment of our faith, all grace has been poured out to us in infinite measure for our salvation. He's not holding anything back at the point of our salvation. Common grace is given to all, non-believers and believers, right? Matthew 5, you know, it's, it's hot today for believers and non-believers. Right? There's water, there's good food for believers and non-believers. Salvific grace, undeservedly, unconditionally, infinitely is given to all Christians at the point of salvation. But this sustaining grace, empowering grace, this sanctifying grace is a conditional grace. It's conditioned upon our behavior, our response, our lives. So though God is able, He desires to, He doesn't give it infinitely. Right? The, 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 the siphon, the bottleneck, is us. And directly proportionate to our cheerfulness and our giving to God, He makes all grace abound in us. 
It is conditional. It is relative. It is proportional to us. Uh, Pastor Piper said this, to be sure there is unconditional grace. It is the glorious foundation of all else in the Christian life. But there is also conditional grace. For most people who breathe the popular air of grace and compassion today, conditional grace sounds like an oxymoron, like heavy feathers. So for example, when people hear the promise of James 4, 6, God gives grace to the humble, many have a hard time thinking about a grace that is conditioned upon humility. Conditional promises are woven all throughout the New Testament. If you forgive men, I will forgive you. Pursue sanctification without no one will see the Lord. 1 Peter 5.10 God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. So here is suffering. In James, it's humility. In 2 Corinthians 9.8 it's cheerful giving. God is able. Conditional. And we meet that criterion. Cheerful giving. And God lavishes on us grace. And I think there's two senses here. It's the grace of uh, meeting all our needs. We will never go without. So again, like, um, you know, a watch is a luxury. You know, a car is a luxury. Air conditioning is a luxury. God doesn't promise us these things. But God promises us Food, shelter, and clothing. We'll never go without these things. To those who believe in His name, He promises us that. There is a material aspect of God's promise. But beyond that, there is grace that encompasses a man's life, a person's life. And there'd be grace abounding in his life experience. To illustrate that, Paul quotes from the Old Testament to show the Corinthians, to show us that he's not making this up as he goes, goes along. This principle is found in the Old Testament as it is written. Anytime you find that, that formula, that four-word four formula, it's quoting from the Old Testament. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Paul is quoting Psalm 112. Psalm 112. Let's turn there and uh, worthy of our attention. Here, Paul employs the Old Testament to highlight the grace that a a cheerful giver receives, both in the material world and also, more importantly, in the spiritual world. Just consider this man. Psalm 112, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. His offsprings, offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Look at all these blessings. Wealth and riches are in his house. His righteousness endures forever, meaning the memory of his righteousness will endure. Endure forever by God. God will remember him forever. When he enters into uh, the great white throne judgment, God will remember his good deeds. Temporally, his children remember. At his funeral, her funeral, his children will have memories of his righteousness. His siblings, 
his community, his friends, will give a true eulogy. Speak well of him because of his righteousness. Verse 4, light dawns in the darkness for the upright. At night there is light for him. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. There is integrity in his life. There is generosity in his life. Therefore, this man, righteous, the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. Right? His bills are paid. He's, he's, taking all the sh- he's not taking any shortcuts. Right? Everything's in order, so he's not. He's sleeping at night. Right? There is just contentment in his. There's peace in his heart because he's acted with integrity, with righteousness, with justice in all his dealings, business dealings. His heart is secure. His heart is firm, trust in the Lord. Verse 8, his heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desires of the wicked will perish. So here is the shalom, peace in a man's life who is obedient to the law of the Lord. There is a firmness and integrity. There is beauty. There is grace in his life. And it's not something that he has produced. It is given by God because he meets the condition of being a generous man of being a man who's a cheerful giver. Not only that, back to St. Corinthians, God will increase the harvest of your righteousness. Increase in growth, in practical righteousness. Practical holiness, verse 10, increase the harvest of your righteousness. Practical maturity, sanctification. God will use are giving as a means for us to grow in Christ in the very area we want to grow in. And so I've, I've talked to many of you for the past few months, and we've all experienced this to different degrees. Or through our studies in the Word of God on Sundays, through our study in the, our Bible studies in flock, through our devotional material, through applying these truths to our lives, we have received grace by God to grow in, the, in, the, in these areas, practical areas, where we found a greater freedom from selfishness, a greater grace to fight greed, fight materialism, fight lusting for the world, lusting for pleasure. Before we were fighting these things, but it was like climbing uphill. But by practically devoting our material things to God, God increased the harvest of our righteousness. Where our appetite for the world, things of this world, has lost its strength. There's greater liberty in our hearts to enjoy God, enjoy church, family, and ministry. God, through our practical efforts, has given us grace to, in measure, be freed from sins of this world. And greater grace to enjoy Enjoy God. I mean, for, for our family, 
one of the things we cut out was eating out. Right. We're eating out, and we said we need to cut some of that out because, you know, with that money we'll give to the Lord. Now, my wife, she grew up as a pastor's, as a PK. Her dad's a pastor. So they're poor growing up. So for them, eating out was a treat. My parents, they're both working full time. Eating at home was a treat. <laughs> eating out was a norm. So I grew up eating out all the time. And so, in our family at least, I made the greater sacrifice in saying we'll not eat out. And in my heart, it was hard. Am I going to die? <laughs> Can I do this? I, my wife's a good cook, you know, but I'm not saying that in any way. But we've been eating, eating home for the past month. It's been greater joy. My desire for, you know, food prepared by uh, restaurants has, has greatly diminished. And there's greater joy eating at home because I see the big picture. I see what God is doing and God's giving me grace. It's a simple illustration to highlight this point. Not only that, verse 9, 11, God will enrich you in every way. Right? God's promises, promise the cheerful giver is God will enrich us in every way. Right. Proverbs eleven twenty four: one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. One paraphrase says, the world of the generous grows larger and larger. The world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. So there is a sense when you're generous to God, God increases our, our joy. He enriches us in every way. It's not confined to finances. But our lives become richer. Uh, I got an insight into this by reading this book by uh, Pastor Mark Buchanan, The Rest of God. He says it really well. I'm just going to read what he said. Uh, this is more than a principle of financial stewardship. It is a basic truth of life in every way. Generous people generate things. And consequently, their lives are more varied, surprising, colorful, fruitful. They're richer in every way. More abounds with them. They have a greater thirst and deeper capacity to take it all in. The world delights with the generous, but seldom overwhelms them. Not so the stingy. Stinginess is parasitic. It chews life up and spits out bones. The stingy end up losing what they try to desperately hold. As Jesus warned, those who store up treasure only on earth discover too late that such storage is merely composting. Hoarding is wasting. So the world of the stingy shrinks. You can see this in every area of a person's life. Friendships. Stingy people have no friends. Right? That's true. You have a friend who's stingy, you don't want to call him to go out and eat. Right? He's going to forget his wallet again. Right? right? A stingy person, you don't want to hang out with a stingy person. If such a person invites you to eat at their house, you don't want to go and eat there because he's calculating. That's three tater tots, right? <laughs> He's taking seconds. Right? He's counting every morsel that you eat. So you don't want to be a friend to a stingy person. He is alone. She is alone. But a generous person abounds with friends. Someone who's generous with his time, with his heart, with his life, with his resources. Man, like he calls and you see caller ID, you pick up right away, right? The generous person. 
He says of time, those who sanctify time, who give time away, who treat time as a gift and not a possession, have time in abundance. Right? Those of you who complain you don't have enough time, those who guard every minute, resent every interruption, ration every moment, they never have enough. They're always late, always behind, always scrambling, always driven. So one learns to be generous with money. That transfers over to being generous with yourself. To family, friends, believers, unbelievers, the world. And so his life is enriched in every way. What great promises that God makes. The result of cheerful giving to the church. Here are the results. First of all, it results in thanksgiving. Verse 11 and 12. You'll be enriched in every way for your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. You can produce other believers to grow in thanksgiving. What a ministry. What an opportunity. You have power in your hands to cause your fellow believers to be filled with gratitude, to cry tears of joy and thanksgiving to God. Man, it's powerful to have that influence in your life. And you can actually encourage a believer and in that way, encourage leaders, pastors, elders in that way. Right? It's by, and it's not an amount. Right? It's the hard attitude by cheerfully giving. Secondly, it brings glory to God. Verse 13, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. It will cause them not to only thank God, but glorify God. The noblest goal of any human endeavor is that God be glorified. That is our ultimate pursuit in life, to glorify God in our lives and the people that we love. In all things, we are called to glorify God. We find that giving here, therefore, is a spiritual service to God. It exalts God. It makes God beautiful, more holy, more powerful, more glorious. And we have the power to do that. By our obedience, other people glorify God. They see in a greater measure the beauty of God. Thirdly, it increases fellowship. Increases fellowship. 2 Corinthians 9.14 While they long for you and pray for you, because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. So, I don't know how true this is. It's kind of a weird thing to say, but I'm going to say it and be discerning, but I think it's true. It might not be kind of easy to hear, but it's kind of true, I think. Um, Like, you know, in a family, like with Elizabeth, it's a little different than the rest of the kids because she's six and they're like three, two, and one. So because Elizabeth was a first and she was, she joined our family for longer and we rejoiced and suffered together longer, there was greater like heart unity. And then Emma and then Ethan and Eleanor, there's nothing. You know? <laughs> She's an infant. Same thing in the church a little bit. I'm sorry, you know, but we love you all equally. But 
But those of you that planted with us 10 years ago, and some of you are still here, just because you gave yourself 10 years ago, like, you know, for the, they'll always, I think they'll, at least, I don't know, maybe, and it's not favoritism, but just because of our experience, because of our sacrifice. And then all those that have joined, the degree of your sacrifice and, and commitment and giving to our church, our camaraderie, our, our, our unity, our longing, our prayer life is, is equal. So if this is your first Sunday, you're like, man, why are people so emotional right now? Why are people like getting all like teary-eyed? Well, it's because, you know, it's your first Sunday. But we've been here for 10 years together. And that's what Paul is saying. This has direct link to fellowship. Direct link to unity and to prayer life. And you know what? Each one of us here who pledged to LTF will forever will be marked by this. We'll remember, oh, you are part of that campaign. Right? I look at this great gym, you know? <laughs> look at this jacuzzi and pool and man! You are there at the first giving. You are part of that, that group that came together for this effort. And you'll know that, and I'll know that. We'll know that through each other, all the shepherds. And we'll have this intimate bond because we put our hearts together at one point in the history of our church. People that come later, just by God's providence and sovereignty, they don't have that opportunity. And we're not going to like penalize them for that. You know, We're not going to put them a small, put them the corner table at communion. No, right? they're one with us. So positionally, they're united. But practically, there is a difference. And Paul, said, Paul is saying here, because you gave right? the Jerusalem church, they long for you. They pray for you. Right, there is this spiritual bond because of your gift. And then finally, it exalts the gospel. Verse 15, thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. And so because it's His inexpressible gift, it's not the, the amount collected. It is the cross. It is Jesus Christ. Because God did all of this, right, because this is all because Christ came he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. All these blessings are made possible. They're made possible. So, Paul closes by giving thanks to God. That's how we want to end. Right. Our heart should be, God did it all. God sent His Son, cheerfully gave. He rescued us. He saved us. He gave us everything in our lives. And He moved our hearts by grace. Grace motivated our hearts to give to the Lord. And we have come together and have provided this gift to God. And God is the author. He is the perfecter. He is the Alpha and Omega. He did it all. So let us give thanks to God together in response uh, to all of this. Let's pray.
Father, we just want to give you praise and give you thanks for your work in our lives, for your causing our heart change, to turn away from loving ourselves, loving you, loving the church, loving the gospel, and causing us, O oh Lord, to commit ourselves in this way all to your glory. We, um, we exalt not in the, the practical gift here, the material gift. We glory in the gift of your Son, which made all these things possible, which uh, has brought all these blessings to our lives, chief among them, forgiveness of our sins. So we give praise, glory, and honor to you. Our hearts are welling up with joy and thanksgiving to you. And may you receive it, and may you be pleased. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.